This morning, we're going to be considering God's Word in Mark chapter 15. So if you haven't done so already, would you turn in your copy of God's Word? Mark chapter 15. So we're nearing the end of Mark's Gospel. Lord willing, we'll end our studies in Mark's Gospel next Lord's Day. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowds to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, a father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way, he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. You join with me in prayer as we consider this particularly important portion of God's Word. Father, we recognize that all Scripture is your Scripture. That you hold the words of life. Where else can we go? Lord, we're also struck by the great irony in knowing that you hold the words of life and that within the very description of death that we find life. So, Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to not only hear and to receive the events as they've been told, but that we would hear and receive the purpose for which they've been accomplished. Lord, help us by the ministry of your Spirit. Help us where our hearts are callous, our eyes are closed, or we're even so familiar with this portion of Scripture that it's lost all impact. Lord, help us to see how the heart of the gospel pulsates within this and how the very life we need is found in the death of your Son. Accomplish your good purposes by the sending forth of your Word. May it be carried forth by the ministry of your Spirit that it would bring bring the sort of fruit that remains, the sort of fruit that brings you glory, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, as we've been reading through Mark's gospel, we are presented with a collection of words and works concerning this man, Jesus Christ. If you quickly skim through the 16 chapters that are contained here, you'll read of Jesus healing the sick. You'll read of him feeding the multitudes, that account where he says, be still, and he calms the wind and the waves. He heals lepers. He casts out demons. He even raises the dead. But it would be a great misunderstanding of Mark's intent to merely read these events as just that, mere events, meaning each work has been given to us not merely as historical incidents, but for doctrinal significance. Likewise, as we come to chapter 15 and read of the historical facts of the crucifixion, a man named Jesus, crucified under Pontius Pilate, Buried in a tomb. And if we were to stop short at this point right here, simply nodding our heads at the fact of the crucifixion, we again would have missed the point in which Mark includes this in the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures do not merely present us with a historical timeline for our own consideration. They're not just a collection of stories of events that have taken place in certain periods of time for us to just nod and consider and say, look at how these events have unfolded and taken place. What we hold in our hands is God's revelation to us. God has spoken. That is the very basis of all theology. That is the very basis and substance of why we gather here this morning. God has spoken. And in his revelation, he has recorded particular events for a purpose. They are woven together for some great overarching reason. There is a redemptive, historical, 
thrust behind every single historical event you read in your Bible. What has God done? That's what we're asking when we open our Bibles. And the second question, for what reason? Why has he done this? Why has he recorded this? Jesus Christ crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Why? J. Gresham Machen said, Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine. And without these two elements joined in absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. Christ died for our sins. And friends, if we merely just stop to say Christ died and recognize it as a historical fact, even getting worked up to show that it was a historical fact, but we don't go to the next page and say, and why does that matter? Then we've missed the point of this portion of Scripture. And it can be tempting to read the account of the crucifixion and not move beyond the mere events of the circumstance. Movies have been made to try and to capture the drama of this event. Medical papers have been written to try and explain the physiological impact of crucifixion upon the human body. You can even book a tour through the Holy Land, retracing the steps of Jesus. But again, while there may be benefit in some of this, we must ask the more important question, why did Christ die? Remember, the Gospel of Mark began with an announcement. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark announces the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And some 14 verses later, Jesus stands on the scene and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Everything that Mark is weaving together has everything to do with good news. So in what way does the death of Christ upon the cross testify of good news? Because that is what Mark has been ushering us towards, to see good news and to see that this good news is found in this man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Well, if you look closely at Mark 15, you will notice that he is faithful to include not only the thumbnail sketch of the arrest, the trial, the death, the crucifixion and burial, but there's also these significant images, these themes that he pulls forward that kind of become the, the, the primary threads woven together in this particular tapestry of, of the mystery of our salvation. What are these threads? What are these images that come to the surface? Well, for one, Christ is king. Did you notice how that was repeated several times in these 39 verses? Christ is king. He's, he's referred to as the king of the Jews six times. Well, it's title filled with irony. And the ironic sting is actually the point of the narrative. Because this phrase, the king of the Jews, it's not a title of respect. It's not a title of praise or adulation. It's a pathetic insult. The king of the Jews. And the ones who laud him with this title, and the irony of how Mark pulls this to the surface, is that the ones who give him this title are actually his accusers. Gentiles. Pontius Pilate. The Roman guards, accusers, religious leaders, the chief priests, they seek to destroy him and accuse him, king of the Jews. 
And in God's great wisdom and ironic dealings, Christ proclaims the truth of his kingship through the lips, not of his disciples, but through his accusers. That God announces who his son is through those who want to kill him. But in the irony of all this, we find the brightness of the gospel announcement. What is it? That Jesus executes his kingly rule, not by conquering with a sword in regal power, but as Mark says, upon a cross in humble weakness. Our king executes his authority and his victory, not with a sword, but in weakness. And it's when we see this Jesus here upon this cross, the king upon the cross, that we uncover the heart of the gospel, that we begin to actually see why this is good news. So notice how these themes come to the surface here and how they're unveiled in our text. What are these themes that Mark pulls together within these events? Well, here's the first one. He says it's good news because the king is condemned and the guilty go free. The king is condemned and the guilty go free. This is really the essence of the first 15 verses of chapter 15. There's a bit of contextual background here that's helpful within the Jewish religious leadership and the Roman occupation that we need to keep in mind. Remember, only hours before this very incident, Jewish authorities found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. Are you the Son of God? I am. And it was upon that testimony, Jesus being the Son of God, that the chief priest, the religious leader, said, that's it, we have our case. He's a blasphemer, and according to our law, blasphemers must be killed. Let's cart him off. He deserves to die. The sin of blasphemy brings the judgment of death. One problem. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, do not have jurisdiction over capital punishment. They are occupied by Rome, and that remains in the hands of Roman authority. You can say he's guilty of blasphemy all you want, but you do not have the authority to put him to death according to what you want to accomplish. Therefore, the chief priests are going to carry out their plot of destruction, and they need Pilate to rule in their favor that this man is also equal, deserving of death. Notice the sort of trial language that marks out the account. Verse 3, the chief priest accused him of many things. Verse 4, Pilate acknowledges the many charges brought against Jesus. So Pilate is the prefect here, holds the authority to commute or pardon the sentence of any criminal that he chooses. And so in many ways, the, un, the verses unfolding here before us are the resolution to this great question. Okay, what's Pilate going to do? The religious leaders want to kill him. Pilate's going to play a central piece in this. What is this man Pilate going to do with this man Jesus that we've been hearing about is the Son of God and that is proclaiming good news? Will he release Jesus, the wrongly accused, the innocent man? Or will, as Mark sets up here, Will he release Barabbas, this known murderer and criminal? What will happen? Well, notice how this concern over release really traces the arc of the story. In verse 6, Pilate, we're told, used to release one of the prisoners for the Jews. Verse 9, Pilate asked, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Verse 11, 
The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas. And then verse 15, Pilate, seeking to appease the angry crowd, were told, released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And there it is. The righteous king is condemned. The guilty criminal is freed. Does injustice anger you? Do you ever find yourself enraged, all worked up, when undeserving people get what they don't deserve? It's offensive, isn't it? Yet have you noticed how this very same theme is the scandal of the gospel? I hope you haven't sanitized or somehow diluted the absolute shock of what the scriptures teach. Thematically, it's painted here for us in Mark 15. But then explicitly, it's worked out in the remainder of the New Testament. This prisoner exchange right here of Mark 15, it reflects the substitutionary nature of the good news that's proclaimed in our scriptures. Perhaps Romans 5, 8's already come to your mind. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or how about 1 Peter 3.18? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And if that wasn't scandalous enough for you, Paul just says flat out in Romans 4.5, friends, God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> that is the emphasis of Romans. Who are the justified? The ungodly, the undeserving. And so when you read Mark 15, the Jesus, the righteous king, is condemned and the guilty one is pardoned, we ought to be shocked. The irony is meant to stand out to us like a giant arrow pointing further to our New Testament, to the heart of the gospel. A guilty murderer is set free and in his place the innocent son of the father is condemned to death? Yes. How is this good news? Well, do you know anything of guilt? As you consider your life, the demands of God's law, do you have some sense of your own rightful condemnation? Maybe not compared to others. Maybe not compared to the one that you work with, that neighbor down the road, your brother-in-law, your father, your estranged children. Maybe not in comparison to them, but what about in comparison to the holiness, righteousness, perfections of God as He is our standard? Do you know anything of guilt? This is the whole idea of the righteousness, of the righteous being condemned and the guilty going free in that it is the heart of the gospel. The, this is the good news that is transforming the world and that is bearing great fruit. This great irony that the righteous one is condemned and that guilty people are going free. 
And perhaps you sit here this morning even recognizing that under the weight of tremendous guilt and even embarrassing shame over what you know you have done and what you deserve. And to hear that the cause of your guilt and the very source of your shame is pardoned, friend, that would be good news, wouldn't it? But it's better than that. What the scriptures announce is even better than pardon. It's not simply that your guilt and your deserving punishment is just put away and just excused. It is better than pardon and that justice is actually satisfied. The great hope of the Christian gospel is not simply that the wrong that we've done has been forgotten, though it has. It's been forgotten because there is no more penalty to be paid. Justice is done. Mercy is given. And therefore, we rejoice. The innocent king is condemned and the guilty go free. Not just on a mere chance or a mistrial. For lack of evidence, wonderfully sufficient evidence to damn. But somebody steps in the place of the guilty and bears the penalty that the guilty deserve. What happens when this good news, the reality of what Christ has done, comes into a life? Well, for one assurance. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. He has thrown our sins into the depths of the sea, and as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards us. As far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. This great assurance comes to us and to our souls and preaches to our guilt and says, I am free. I'm guilty, but the innocent one stood in my place. And not only assurance, it brings great joy, friends. The weary load was borne by him. And he's given me rest. Or if you like, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That there is something now within us that says, I must give him my all, joyfully, gladly, because the righteous king was condemned and me, the guilty one, has gone free. So this is the promise extending this morning to the, the authority of Christ's word. Guilty sinners are free because of Christ's condemnation. And Mark says that's good news. But there's another theme that he pulls to the surface here. He says, good news, this king takes his place among the guilty. This king takes his place among the guilty. Look back at verse 16. You'll notice how then the account of the crucifixion is given. All the way down through 16 and verses 21, the more details of the crucifixion, and then specifically down in verse 30, that he cannot save himself, or as we know, he will not save himself. Now, in keeping with Mark's brisk, clipped narrative style, the brutality of Christ's death is summed up with, and they crucified him. That's very Markan, isn't it? The way that he's been moving through these various events. Mark simply announces the fact of the crucifixion, knowing well that his readers are very familiar and aware of this horror and the brutality and the shame of what crucifixion is. 
Rome did not invent crucifixion, but they perfected it in their ability to inflict pain and to maximize torture as a form of capital punishment. Crucifixion was a punishment reserved for non-Roman citizens. It was carried out with the most excessive cruelty, the most public places upon the most despised people. It was this form of capital punishment that it was reserved for slaves, reserved for violent offenders, and reserved for prisoners of war. No Roman citizen would ever be crucified. The experience of being flogged and stripped naked and mocked, abused, and then nailed to a cross, it was a common treatment for prosecuted criminals. And as Rome began to expand outward, Typically, these crucifixions were carried out in the most public places and the most well-trafficked roads that led to Rome. It would be common in the day that Mark wrote this to make your way to Rome and have to walk through hundreds of crucifixions as you went into Rome. It's a motivating effect. It's a very useful tactic to say, we're in charge. And it's among such disgusting shame and guilty men that Christ takes his place, literally flanked by two criminals. This king is upon a cross. Do you see what this means? Not merely what it says. Do you see what it means? This king, he comes to save. But he does not save his people from a luxurious and a pristine environment, draped in royal comfort, calling out from a safe distance, come to me, you who would be saved. He doesn't do that. No, our Lord Jesus, he took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The king takes his place among the guilty. But we should have seen this coming. This shouldn't actually be a surprise to us if we've been reading Mark's account. Has Jesus not been testifying of this his entire ministry? Because from the very inauguration of his ministry, where do we find him? In the waters of the Jordan, seeking to receive the baptism of John that was a baptism of repentance. His very first scene is himself lining up with the very ones who are saying, I'm a sinner. And Jesus steps in among them and begins to identify with sinners. And what did he teach? What did he reveal to his disciples throughout his ministry? Mark chapter 8. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. You're the Christ, and I'm going to be killed. Or later in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant 
And whoever would be first among you must be your slave of all. Why, Jesus? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How does King Jesus save his people? By identifying with them. He's come to take his place among the guilty. Is this not what the prophet Isaiah foretold? Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was identified and bore the sins of the many. Friend, the essence of the gospel, the essence of the good news is that Christ saves his people by identifying with them, by coming to them. Not in a trivial pat on the back sort of way like, I get you, it's hard. Not at all like that. But in the most brutal, the most sacrificial, the most costly way by identifying with his people in their sin. A Christian is not one who merely knows something about Jesus. A Christian is not one who just has laid a hold of a particular piece of information about Jesus, though that is part of it. We could more readily say that a Christian actually, ultimately, is that Jesus knows something about them, and most specifically, he knows their sin to the degree that he bore it upon his own shoulders upon a cross in their place. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christ became a curse for his people, bearing the curse of our sin in his place. But Mark pulls one other theme to the surface. He says, good news. This king is judged and forsaken as the guilty deserve. Judged and forsaken. Look back at verse 29. Mark 15, verse 29. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see him and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark gives us a few time markers within the event. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Uh, That would be 9 a.m. And it was the sixth hour, 12 p.m., when there was darkness over the whole land until 3 p.m. When the land should be enjoying the full light of day, it's instead shrouded in darkness. And to read of darkness that cloaks the daylight... That is a sign of judgment. That is a biblical theme 
and a repetition throughout God's word that when you read that, you hear, ah, this is not good. When it's daylight and it's actually dark, this is concerning. To give darkness in the place of light, that's a form of judgment, physically and metaphorically, that God has brought upon the earth in several moments in redemptive history. You might already be remembering the plague of darkness that God brought in Egypt. Exodus 10, 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that may be felt. And if you remember, the whole purpose of those ten plagues was simultaneously to bring salvation through judgment. I'm going to bring judgment to make my name glorified, and I'm going to save my people. Friends, this theme of salvation through judgment is one that continues to come up in our scriptures. And is it any wonder that it's found right here? That there is a judgment that's brought, and it's through that judgment that God brings salvation. And in this particular instance, he is casting darkness upon the land, testifying of the reality of what this event is and what it means. It is most certainly judgment. It's a twofold judgment. For one, it's a judgment upon humanity. For they have crucified the Lord of glory. The innocent Son of God is crucified upon a tree. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And darkness you will have. It's also ultimately a judgment upon the Son. It's a judgment upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not simply a man upon a cross. This is the God-man who dies in the place of sinners. He's bearing the curse of sin that his people deserve. And this darkness testifies to this fact as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer? Silence. Darkness. But because this is the Son of God who dies in the place of his people, this judgment, it accomplishes something. Sandwiched between these two statements about his death, Mark cuts to a scene in the temple. Look down to verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who faced, stood facing him saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. The tearing of the curtain confirms the cessation of the temple sacrifices and a new way that's opened up to the presence of God. Jesus Christ upon the cross. For what reason? Do you see what Mark is getting at? Do you see these themes that are coming to the surface? The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have to, have to come, that through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ, the Son of God, bearing the judgment of sin in the place of God, secures access for the people of God. No longer must we cower in any sort of fear, 
awaiting the judgment that our, our sin rightly deserves because the perfect blood of Christ has cleansed our conscience and restores us to God. Hebrews 10 goes further. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith that with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Christ dies upon the cross, temple torn, curtain torn, access to this God because of the judgment, because of the forsaking that's fallen on Him. What Mark says here is good news. Good news, even Though we are wrecked and though we are defiled by our sin, even though this rebellion rightfully exposes us to the wrath of God, Christ bears our judgment and he brings restoration. So when we tie all of these elements together, what do we see? Well, Christ is condemned so that the guilty go free. Christ has come to take his place among the guilty And Christ bears the judgment, the forsaking that we all deserve. And so what do we find? We find that King Jesus opens the way for us to the Father by satisfying the payment of sin, securing our access for His people. And this has been Mark's emphasis all along when he announced the good news, that Jesus is the rescuer, the promised rescuer, and that He comes to save through sacrifice. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. You may know what a ransom is. But kids, this is helpful for you to understand and remember. A ransom is essentially securing a freedom by paying a price. And the work of Christ, of what He's come to do, it's that of a ransom. His life was the ransom price And his life is the substitutionary payment. And substitution, it's the word that we use that we helpfully find some ways like Trinity. It's not a word that's in our scriptures, but it's something that's very much in our scriptures by way of declaration and by way of implication. It's a word that summarizes what we find in the Bible from the very start, that sin is atoned for by the sacrifice of another. That's what substitution means. Sin is atoned for by the sacrifice of another that should be me, but it's someone else. Whether that's an innocent lamb, whether that's a dove, or whether that's the Son of God. This gospel tells us, essentially, that our Creator has become our Redeemer. It announces that the Son of God has become man for us and for our salvation, that He's died on a cross to save us from this eternal judgment. Redeeming love and, and, and justice have, have joined hands. Righteousness and, and peace they've kissed because there upon Christ, there upon Calvary, God showed Himself ultimately to be the just and the justifier. Just and that it's not just a pardon, but the penalty is actually paid and the justifier, and that he actually ransoms and redeems his people, declaring them to be justified. And so that's why we say good news. 
The king was judged and forsaken. He's taken our place. Our king was condemned, but we are free. Christ was crucified. Why? And we say, that is why. And friends, when we begin to consider that, is it any wonder that we find that that is the the very message that has brought revival to dead churches, that has brought life where there's only death, that's brought faith where there was only apostasy? Is there any reason that that is what message is what brings assurance to doubting sinners? That is what brings comfort to grieving spouses? That this message, Christ and Him crucified, is the power of God not only unto salvation, but the whole completion of salvation as we stand in glory. That's why when we consider this message that we find ourselves often with the hymn writer humming along or sometimes even at the top of our lungs, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with a blood, and then we all try and hit that upper register, hallelujah, what a savior. That is the sort of song that comes forth from someone who's not only heard that Christ was crucified, but understands why he was crucified. Father, we pray that you would continue to cause the goodness of your word to transform the reality of who we are. Thank you that you have given to us these events and that you've given to us the meaning of these events that we can read with great confidence that Christ was crucified and that we can find great assurance for the very reason in which that took place. Lord, we pray that this continued message would be that which builds and strengthens your church, which nourishes our, our souls. Lord, which continues to call sinners out of darkness and into light, that would give the very shape and ethos to the church in which we call home. Lord, we pray that your gospel your good news would continue to cause us to stand in awe. It would continue to cause us to be the very motivation for which we go into our week joyfully and gladly seeking to obey you, knowing that your commands are not a burden, the very reason in which we want to open our mouths and testify through evangelism of the goodness of what you have done. Lord, continue to cause your gospel, the goodness of your Son upon the cross for your people, to be the very heartbeat in the heart of what we love and proclaim for Christ's sake. Amen.